Well, happy Labor Day weekend. I'm glad you're here. And I, it looks like maybe a lot of us have plans elsewhere, but I'm glad that you're here as we continue studying in Revelation. Got a question. Any of you coffee drinkers? You're kind of quiet for, yeah? Sounds like some of you need to go get a cup right now. You got my permission. Not that you need it, but yeah. I like coffee. I, I think it smells better than it tastes, but hey, it's all right. Yeah. But it, it's good stuff. Some of you, you're obsessive about your coffee, though. Like, I have friends who wince when I talk about making coffee in the Keurig. And they're like, really? And they're like, yeah, it's good. Like, it's not really coffee, but I got to, these are friends who, like, source their own coffee beans. They go to Central America and find the perfect mix. You know, when they're going to make a cup, they, they grind it. They, they use one of these things and use a coffee press to make it. And, hey, like, maybe I just don't have a discriminating palate, but to me that seems like an awful lot of work for something that doesn't end up in Mountain Dew. So... That's my thinking right there. I like my caffeine cold. <laughs> Remember my grandma Velma when we were growing up. Grandma Velma, she was so sweet, but she'd say, oh, no, I'm not addicted to coffee. I could quit anytime. Well, I'm not addicted to caffeine. And in the same breath, she would say, I have this horrible headache until I get my third mug of the morning. Oh, no, grandma, you're not addicted at all. You're fine. All right? You know you're passionate about your coffee when you do what some people in New York City did a couple of years ago. Do you guys remember Hurricane Sandy? Remember that? When Superstorm Sandy slanted the, into the east coast of the United States and the Atlantic, it became the largest hurricane in the Atlantic on record. This was October 29, 2012. It uh, did like something like $68 billion in damage. There were 268 or 286 people in seven countries that were killed from the storm. So they're just reminding you how powerful a storm is. It was incredibly destructive. It was not a storm you mess with. And as it bore down on New York City, you may recall this, everybody shut down. The whole city just stopped. Even Starbucks, they're like, you know, they sent out the word to all their stores, just close down. It's not worth it. We don't want our employees getting hurt. Just go home. One store right off Times Square in New York City went rogue. They stayed open. And word got out. People start tweeting, hey, the one off of uh, Times Square is open. And people start putting it on Facebook. And people started showing up. And you think, kidding me? In the middle of a hurricane that could kill you, you need your coffee that bad? Absolutely. This is a picture here. This, uh, this is a mom and a daughter, Bethany Owings. Bethany walked 10 blocks through a hurricane with her one-year-old daughter to get a cup of java. That's commitment. She's like, I saw it on Facebook. It's open. We're going. Her neighbor came over and said, did you say Starbucks is open? Pack up your stuff. Let's go. And they went down there. There was another guy who walked 20 blocks all over New York until he found an open Starbucks. And the reporter who wrote about this also said they interviewed another guy who was like, I had to get my pumpkin spice. I just had to go, right? It seems like a, a lot of things to go through just to get a cup of coffee. How many of you would do that? Be honest. A few of you. Yeah, <laughs> right? Look, I'm not judging. Honestly, I'm not. I, I admire anybody who's got that much passion and enthusiasm about something. That's, that's cool. That's good. Especially when it's focused on the right things. Whatever your passion is. I think that level of passion is what the Apostle Paul was talking about. He wrote something in the Bible he wrote a letter to the church that gathered in the city of Rome. And as he wrote to them, I think that's what he was talking about when he addressed those Christians when he said in Romans 12, 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And what he's saying there in that verse is, like as passionate as you are about your Starbucks or your coffee or your you know, NASCAR or whatever it is you're passionate about, take that same intensity and focus that towards God and towards bringing God's goodness into the world. And, and don't lose that fire and that spark that there's so much that could be done. And, and, don't, and, and you know, when I listen to Jesus talk to the church 
in Laodicea, as Kelly read those words just a few moments ago that we all listened to, I get the idea that that was a church that just lost its spark. It lost its zeal. It lost its spiritual fervor. It, it was a church that maybe it was great at one time, but stopped going out in the hurricane to, to do what God had called on them to do. They'd lost the passion. They just became comfortably numb. And Jesus calls them out on it. As we read through this, I want to just point out, this is some of the harshest words that Jesus has spoken so far. I want to give you a little background about the church that gathered in the city of Laodicea because when we know the historical context, what it meant first to them, it makes a whole lot more sense to us. So as we dig into this, just remember that Revelation was written around the year A.D. 100. So we're about 70 years past the ministry and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John penned these words and sent them to seven churches in what we call Turkey today. It was Asia Minor. And John, at this point in his life, is a pretty old man. He's on the island of Patmos when Jesus appears to him 70 years after his ministry. And he says, John, I need you to get a word out to my churches. There's an old man. He's the last living apostle. What's he doing on Patmos? Is he on vacation? Just like the island of Hawaii? No, when we understand the, the context of that time, Patmos was an island to the Roman government as what Guantanamo is to us. It was a place where they sent political prisoners, people they wanted to make disappear. Which then begs the question, why is an old man a threat to the empire? Well, they were chasing down all the Christian leaders because at that point, the Roman Empire wrongly believed that Christians were a threat to them. away on this island, and Jesus appears to him and says, take this down. I want you to write letters to the seven churches. Now, it's significant. Jesus just didn't pull seven out of the air and go, just uh, any seven will do. Seven is symbolic set. It means wholeness. So by saying, John, I want you to write to seven different churches and seven different... This is not just a message for them. This is a message for all of us. Revelation wasn't first written to us, but it was certainly written... As Jesus talks to the church at Laodicea, I just want you to picture this. He's first looking at them, but he's also looking at eye contact with us. He's, he's like talking to us today. And there's a message here that we need to, to lean into. And Jesus doesn't waste any time. He gets right to the point. He, first of all, he just, as he gives his resume, and he says... To the angel at the church of Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And then he digs in, and he's got some strong language here. He says, I've looked at your deeds, and I know everything, and I've seen everything. Katy Perry wasn't singing about you. You're not hot, and you're not cold either. You're just like the lukewarm middle. And Jesus says, you're so bad, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. You're just awful. What's wrong with this church that would make Jesus talk about in that way? If you're taking notes, you can write this down. His problem with this church is that they've become apathetic and they've become lazy as a church. They've lost their zeal to serve God. They don't have any fire anymore. They just don't care. They're just content to show up when they do. Now, I, firm, I contend that Jesus is not only the most intelligent person who's ever lived. I really believe that any, he has the best information on any subject you want to know about. I also believe Jesus was the best teacher who ever lived. And so we got to understand when Jesus uses this strong language, he's really trying to get a point across. And when we know a little bit more about Laodicea, we understand he's using images and pictures that meant a lot to them and made more sense to us when we dig into this. Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy city. They were new money, not old money. We'll get into that in a little bit, but this is an incredibly wealthy city. And they could buy anything they wanted. It was a great city to live in, but one thing they didn't have in Laodicea was their own water source. 
you, they didn't have any springs or anything like that in the city, so they had to source their water elsewhere. The, the water municipality had to go out, and they had plenty of money to buy water, which is great. You see the map up here? You see where Laodicea is? There were two cities that, were, that neighbored it. There's Colossae and Hierapolis. Colossae, if you've seen the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians in your Bible, Paul wrote a letter to the, the church that met in that city. These two neighboring cities had good water. Hierapolis, for example, they had these mineral hot springs that sprung up in that region, and people would come from all over to go to the hot springs in Hierapolis for the healing benefits. They'd like, you know, tired, aching bodies come in and sit in the hot tub, and they'd feel better. I don't, have anybody you been to, like, hot springs, Arkansas? I, I can't remember if I've been there. It seems like when I was a kid, maybe, but there were hot springs, North Carolina. Nobody? Well, same principle. You can go there, and you can go, and there's hot water that springs up out of the ground, and it's great temperature, and you can go sit in the water, and it supposedly has therapeutic benefits, and I think the one in Hot Springs, North Carolina, they even said it had uranium in it. And at that time, they thought that was a good thing. Oh, I'm going to go sit in the uranium, and I'll feel better. <laughs> You'll feel something. Yeah. That's Hierapolis. People would come there, and the water was awesome. Colossi, same thing. They had springs, but they weren't hot springs. They were cold. Like, you know, it's really hot. It's the kind of place you bring a picnic and just sit down on an afternoon and get a cool glass of water. Tasted awesome. So we got Laodicea in the middle. They don't have their own water, but they've got lots of money. What are they going to do? They're going to find and pay for the best water that money can buy from Heropolis and Colossae. Back in the 1960s, archaeologists have unearthed elaborate water systems that brought water into the city of Laodicea from Colossae and from Heropolis. So they had all these pipes and ductwork and great engineering for 2,000 years ago. We, we always think that we're the smartest because we came last, but incredible sophisticated technology back then. Best money could buy. But here's what would happen. What do you think happens to hot water after it's traveled through pipes all the way from Heropolis to Laodicea? Or what do you think's happened to nice ice-cold water by the time it's traveled through hot pipes to get to Laodicea? And it kind of blends in the city. And Laodicea bought the best water money could buy, but it tasted awful. It was just kind of lukewarm by the time it got to them. It, people commented on how bad it was. It's kind of like Florida water. kind of had that sulfury smell. It just was not good water. And so everybody remarked and commented on that, and Jesus is tapping into that image when these come together. And he says, like, you're not hot Heropolis water, and you're not cold Colossi water. You're just kind of that lukewarm stuff that you guys have to deal with in your city. And you make me want to spit you out of my mouth. And the language here is very shocking. Jesus actually said, you make me want to vomit. That's how you, the same reaction you have when you drink your water, that's the reaction I have to you. Again, it's very strong. Now, I could be wrong, but the way I've heard this taught, I don't think it's actually correct. Maybe you've heard this taught before that what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to be hot and on fire for God. Or, I want you to be cold and distant and removed from God, just like you don't even know God. I want you to be one or the other, but because you're kind of halfway in the middle, I don't like you. I've heard it taught that way, but I'm not sure. Would Jesus have meant that? Would Jesus want people he loves to be distant and cold from him? Does that make sense? Is that what the people in the city of Laodicea would have understood Jesus to mean? When they're paying top dollar for good hot water and good cold water, would they have said, well, okay, hot's good and cold's bad? No. They would have understood this as hot and cold both being good. Hot and cold can be good, right? Hot coffee, hot chocolate, hot tub, heating pad on your back when you pull the muscle. Hot's good. Cold's good too, though, right? Ice cold milk. Anybody there with me on that? That's good stuff. How about uh, the cool side of the pillow? Right? 
You've got a fever and your mom puts her cool hand on your forehead. Iced tea. Hot and cold are both good. Lukewarm, not so much. Anybody want some room temperature ice cream? How about somebody offer you a cup of tea? Like, like it's supposed to be iced tea, but they don't have any ice. Mmm. <laughs> That's good. Hey, you want that beer? It's been sitting on the picnic table all afternoon in the sun. Does that sound good? Lukewarm's not always good. Here's, here's what I think Jesus is saying to this church. Sometimes I want my followers to be hot, like a therapeutic hot spring, and I want you to be um, uh, just a word of healing to somebody, and I want you to be a word of encouragement to somebody, and I want you to be on fire for me. And sometimes I want my followers to be cool, just a, a calming influence when everything else is going crazy, or a kind word that's spoken to someone, like a refreshing cup of ice water. Sometimes I want my followers to be either one of those things, but the problem with the church at Laodicea is they were just not either one. They were so self-absorbed, so self-centered, so concerned with themselves that they'd forgotten that anybody else existed, and they weren't doing anybody any good either direction. And that's why Jesus says so strongly, I just can't stand you the way you are. Do something. Don't just sit there and do nothing. You know, I think about our church here at Connection, and I believe that God has put a unique opportunity in front of us as a church family together. I really believe that God put us in this place and at this time to do good in his name in this community. And I hope that we're doing it. And I believe that you are rising to the challenge. I think of like the backpack project where you are bringing in food and we're going to send it home with kids who maybe would be hungry on the weekends otherwise. Good job. I think about how you're bringing in food for the food pantry. I think about how you're taking meals to people who've had a baby or who are sick or who've lost a loved one. Good job. I think about we've got like Darden Prairie Day coming up here in September and we're going to be there actually helping run the event and being in our community, serving our community. I think about Operation Christmas Child and we're going to be sending gifts to children all over the world. And that may be the first that some of these kids ever get something like that with a shoebox that you send out. I think about how many of you are generous with your finances and we're able to do so many things because of that in our community. Yeah, I don't know. Jesus gets the final say on this. But I would hope that if Jesus wrote a, a letter to our church that he would say, you guys are doing good. You're hot and you're cold. You're, you're serving in my name. And I love that. But I have to ask you this. How are you doing with this personally? Because a lot of times we can get credit for what we do together, but you actually didn't do anything to, to have a hand in that. Yeah, the church is doing good, but did, did you do anything personally? Can you put your check mark or put your name? And believe I'm not talking about earning your salvation. I'm not talking about like God's going to somehow be you know, happier with you or love you more if you do more. It doesn't work that way. He can't love you any more than he already does. But is your faith expressing it in any kind of action at all? I mean, have you personally ever, you yourself, taken a meal to someone? Have you personally ever written a card of encouragement to someone? Have you personally ever brought something into the food pantry or for the backpacks? Have you personally ever stopped and had a conversation with someone and listened to them, or do you just blow out here every week as soon as it's over? Have you personally put yourself in the game? Anybody here like football? Anybody like happy that college football starting, high school football starting, and the preseason games are going? Yeah. Would you ever be happy if you were like watching your favorite team and they went out on the field and they huddled up and that's all they did? Would you be excited about that? Like, look at my team. Look at them huddle. They're so good. They know how to get in a circle. Man, I bet he's calling a play right now. And he's, they're talking about what they could do. And they're holding hands and they're just, oh, they're so fired up. 
would you be proud of that team if that's all they ever did? No, you'd be embarrassed. I don't know. I, I used to cheer for them, but I don't know what they're doing now. Mike Bro says it this way. He says, you know, a lot of times people who are not Christians, who are outside the church, they look at churches and they perceive them to be groups of people who just huddle up. And they get together and they talk about things they could do. And they get together and they talk about other huddles down the street and how they're doing it wrong. They get together and they huddle up and they argue about what the pep band should be playing, what kind of music. And they argue about what the team uniform should look like when you do come to the huddle. But they never break. They never say go team and get out there and do anything. And, that, and Mike says that's what churches look like to people who aren't in churches. They're just groups of people who don't ever do anything in Jesus' name. They don't ever get out there and feed the hungry or take care of people who are hurting or just show some love to their own families or live with integrity. Again, I hope that Jesus would not say that about our church. Because when a church becomes apathetic and it becomes self-centered, Jesus says, I have no use for you anymore. You're not doing what I put you to do. And that needs to change. I don't want to be a lukewarm church, do you? You know, as I keep listening to what Jesus wrote at, to this church at Laodicea, I see another problem that emerged there. Look at verse 17. Jesus said, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You know what he says, not only are you guys lazy and apathetic, you guys have become self-sufficient in that you have lost your sense of dependency on God. Now, I told you the city of Laodicea was incredibly wealthy. They were new money wealthy. Ledoux and more Chesterfield. They were like newly minted Silicon Valley millionaires. They didn't always have money. They, that's why Jesus says you've acquired money. If there was ever a city that was proud, independent, entrepreneurial, self-sufficient, with something to prove, it would be Laodicea. Let me tell you why this happened. This is a city that always dreamed of being recognized. You go back to the year A.D. 26. It's about 75 years before this letter was written to this church. This is before there were churches. A.D. 26 is right before Jesus began his ministry on earth. The city of Laodicea put in a bid to build a temple for the Roman emperor Tiberius. So we want to build a temple to honor you out here in Asia Minor. And the word came back, thanks but no thanks. We've reviewed your application and we don't believe you have sufficient funding to build a temple that would be suitable for the emperor. That crushed them. And what they did is they became like the athlete who didn't make the team, like the actor who tried out for the part but didn't get accepted, like the person who put in the application and the resume and were turned down, you know, like the city that bid on the Olympics and didn't get it. They said, hey, you're going to turn us down? We'll show you. And they set to work, and what they did was phenomenal in the next 50 years or so. They looked at what they had, and they turned it into money. For one thing, in that region around Laodicea, they had sheep that grew black wool. They translated this into their garment industry, into must-have fashions. All over the world, people started talking about Laodicean wool and the garments that were made from it. It was just incredible. Like if they had Joan and Melissa Rivers on the red carpet, they'd be going, what are you wearing? Who are you wearing? Is that Laodicean wool? So it was, they, were, they made a lot of money off of that. And so they became very wealthy off of that. Another thing that, that they did was they became known for their state-of-the-art medical facilities. They developed this uh, eye ointment that treated blindness. And so people would come from all over to be treated. They were like forerunners in the field of ophthalmology. 
And so they're making incredible amounts of money from this cutting-edge, state-of-the-art technology, from their garment industry, from other things. They were very entrepreneurial with their businesses. So much so that to the point by, in the year AD 60, there was an earthquake that completely devastated the region, completely destroyed Laodicea. Back in Rome, at the main government, they were, like, were sending out the equivalent of FEMA to help rebuild. The city of Laodicea said, thanks, but no thanks. We will fund our own rebuilding project. How do you like being rejected now, Rome? How do you like them apples? They turned it around. They were the ones who were rejected, and now they're saying, we have acquired all this wealth. Look what we've done. We've made it ourselves. We, we don't need anyone. You know, and in the midst of this affluent city sat an affluent church. And the same attitude that the city had, the church had. We don't need anything. They lost their sense of dependence on God, even in the church. And Jesus writes to them, he says, you know, that attitude just makes me want to throw up. This is the same Jesus who taught this in his ministry, Luke 12, 15. You can see this on the screen. Jesus said, take care, protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Life's not defined by how much you've got, even if you've got a lot. You know, sometimes this is one of those times where I really think Jesus is looking past Laodicea and he's talking straight to us in the church in America one of the times that this really hit me was when I was down in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, after they had their earthquake. I was down there and working with an orphanage outside of Port-au-Prince, and some of the pastors were there, and, and the, one of the leaders, one of the pastors said, Brian, when you're here, can you at some point teach on heaven? I'm like, sure. Why do you want me to do that? And he said, we here in Haiti just don't have an accurate perception of the life to come. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, if you ask anybody who's a Haitian Christian, they will tell you that heaven is the place where you've got everything you want to eat and you're safe. I'm just thinking, if that's what it takes to be in heaven, I already live there. It's called St. Peter's and O'Fallon and Darden Prairie. We have so much, and we run the risk of becoming dangerously self-sufficient, thinking that we've acquired everything we need. and We got it covered, God. I mean, I'll call you if I need you, but I think I can handle this myself. That's where the, the church at Laodicea was, and it's a, it's a warning to us. This is strong language from Jesus. But I want you to get a picture here. It's not like Jesus just singled one person out. It's not like he just said, sorry, Chuck, but Chuck, you're neither hot nor cold. He's not doing that. He's not just like, okay, I'm a, he's talking to an entire group of people. He's talking to all of us. So don't get the idea that this is God once again waving his finger in your face, telling you how disappointed he is in you, how you need to step up and do more. When Jesus talks this way, he's thinking, I want you to be corrected, not condemned. Jesus is seeking to teach us something. He wants to use this language in a way that we understand and change, not that we just walk away going, okay, I will never live up to what God expects from me at the end. It's not like that. Look at verse 18, what Jesus says. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and have white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so I can see. He says, look, I'm going I'm to give you some advice, church, because I love you. I don't want to condemn you. I want to correct you. I want to give you some. Buy some gold for me. That new money you got, it can go away just as quick as it came. Why don't you invest yourself in a faith in me that no one can take away from you and the harder things get in your life, that'll just refine your faith more and more. Buy some gold from me. You know, and what Jesus is saying too is, while you're at it, why don't you buy some eye salve from me? I know you guys got that good stuff there, but 
You guys have become so nearsighted, you only care about yourself. Jesus says, come to me. Let me help you see the world around you that needs you. That, that you can do more than just live for yourself. That you can get back on track and realize what I've done for you that, that you could never repay, you could never have done for yourself. And then you can turn around and do that for other people. Jesus says this in verse 19 and verse 20. Look, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. You don't discipline someone else's kids, you discipline your own. I'm doing this because I love you. Verse 20. Here I am, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I've heard this verse taught a lot of times. Like Jesus is talking to people who are not Christians. Is that who he's talking to in this letter? He's not saying like, if, if you're not a Christian, I'm knocking at the door, will you come in and let me into your life? I mean, that's a good image, but that's not what it is here. It's like Jesus is standing inside the door to his own church. Am I welcome in my own church? Or can you guys just do church and I'm not even there and you don't even notice? I would love to come in and eat with you and share life with you, but will you be a part of me and let me be a part of your life? Let's close this out. I just want to ask you, you know, we, every week we've been praying that the Spirit would speak to us. Is God's Spirit saying something to you about the, the temperature of your life, the fervor, the passion maybe that you once had for God that's kind of dwindled and cooled down? Is maybe God speaking to you and asking you to, to fire things up and, and maybe find a way to serve Him. Find a way to be a refreshing person in somebody else's life. Find a way to reignite that passion that you maybe once had for God. To be the coolest, most refreshing person you know. Oh, maybe God's speaking to you and asking you to invite Him in your life for the first time. Maybe He is standing at the door and asking you, will you, will you accept me into your life? What is it that God's asking you to do today? Will you act on it? Why don't we pray right now? Father, I believe we're listening to you. I just pray that we will understand what it is you're asking us to do and that we'll have the courage to do it. Help us to understand how much you love us and that when you say difficult but true things to us, it's only because you do want us to repent and to come to a better life. So, Father, we're, we're listening. Help us to act. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.